Welcome to the sermon podcast of South Hills Church in Costa Mesa. My name is Chris Kretzu, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you for carving out the time to listen to this today. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged, and ultimately that you'll have a deeper sense of God's love for you. I'll be back after the message is over, but until then, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Have you ever thought about the way that you make decisions? Have you ever thought about what is the process I go through for making decisions? I would be willing to bet that most of us don't really have a very intentional process. Most of us probably don't have a, a natural path or a, a routine way that we go through this. And, and especially when life is crazy and we're just kind of like flying a mile a minute, it, we just make the decisions. And uh, I like to think that my decisions are all based on logic and wisdom. Uh, but that's probably rarely the case. Would you agree? Mary, my wife agrees. So, uh, so she would have agreed whether I said rarely or never, uh, really. Is, so, um, But what I've been thinking of, we've been in a series called Blessed, and we've been talking about how it's not just about financial blessings. Like when we talk about I'm blessed or I, am, uh, I have been blessed, it's not just about money. It's not just about stuff. It's not just about how much we've accumulated. Um, there's a bigger picture in play. But what I've realized is that we make a lot of decisions based on fear, especially a lot of our financial decisions based on fear. Um, There's a lot of times that fear comes into play, uh, fear of what could be, worry about the future, uh, anxiety about what the implications of a certain choice might have. Um, I don't know if you guys are like me, but a lot of times I'll spend my energy um, kind of thinking about the scenarios that may or may not happen like two or three years from now. And it's ridiculous. It's just exhausting. It's a, it's a way for me just to spin my wheels and spend energy kind of playing out situations and making decisions for things that may not ever happen. But we have this, this ability to kind of imagine, and on almost always that imagination is used in a worst-case scenario type of situation, whereas I look at my kids and they use their imagination for beautiful and fun things, I imagine the worst things. I imagine what could go wrong. I imagine the problems, the, you know, what are the gas prices going to be next year? What's the market going to do? Or this or that or, or whatever the thing is. It's like, it's this imagination that just keeps going and, and it, it informs how I make choices. It informs the decisions that I make. Fear, fears about succeeding, fears about relationships, fears about what others will think of us, fears about money and finances. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was a theologian. Uh, he lived in the 1200s, so a long time ago. Um, and he talked about this idea, and he said that fear causes a contraction of the soul. Fear has this ability to cause our soul, kind of the deepest, most inmost parts of who we are, to, to restrict and contract, and, and it causes us to kind of like, uh, I don't know if shrivel is the right word, but just kind of pull ourselves in, which is the wrong position to be in as followers of Jesus, to, to pull ourselves in, to close our hands, to restrict, to contract. Is, this is not the way that God has called us to live or to love or to trust. He went on in his writings, and Aquinas compared this effect that fear has on people to a similar thing as a city that, that's under siege. And remember, he, he's lived long ago, but he would talk about how when an army attacks a city, that city, uh, these smaller towns, essentially what they would do is they would call everybody inside the walls, they would lower the gates, 
or this direction, I guess, lower, lower the gates, raise the drawbridge, whatever it is. And they would just kind of hunker down and say, well, hopefully we can just make it longer than whoever's attacking us. Hopefully we can just make it through this thing. It's this contracting, this, this sense of, I don't know what I can do, but let me just kind of keep my head down and, and see how things play out. Fear impacts so many decisions that we make. It informs so many decisions that we make. Uh, I do uh, premarital counseling with uh, a lot of couples, which should be terrifying to all of you. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's this process, and I got licensed a long time ago to do it, and it's, it's a really great process, just kind of helping them ask some questions. And, and one of the questions that it asks couples is, what are your financial fears? And almost every single time, one person says, my fear is not having enough to be secure in the future. And the other one says, my fear is not being able to have what I want right now. <laughs> and this is what we'd call a spender, and this is what we'd call a saver, and you may know which one of those you are. But it's hilarious, because it happens in almost every, I, there's only been one time that I can remember where the couple has been the same, and thankfully they were both savers, which is probably a good thing. But but there's these fears, and whichever way you're wired, it informs how you choose. Because if you're wired as a saver, someone who's afraid of not having enough, then you are going to hold on to everything that you have. It's going to inform the decisions that you make because I want to make sure that 10, 20, 40 years from now, I've got what I need to be able to be safe. Some of us have a number, but the reality is, is that most of us are just chasing a feeling of what safety is, a feeling of what enough is. On the other hand, you have the spenders, uh, <laughs> like me and a few of you, and it doesn't actually matter. We're just going to buy it because I want it now. And what if uh, it sells out? What if the sale ends? We'd be losing money to not buy this thing. You know, it's a wise financial... So fear, whichever way you are wired, fear is going to inform your choices. And, and Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus preached is found in the beginning of Matthew. We're going to look at a portion of it. Um, it's Matthew chapter 6, and Jesus is teaching, and he says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, some of you guys, especially if you grew up in church and depending, I grew up I don't really, well, I remember growing up in whatever translation I was reading, it, it didn't say uh, you cannot serve both God and money. It said you cannot serve both God and mammon. Uh, does anybody else have like a, that church background where you remember that word? And I remember thinking when I was younger, I was like, man, I can't believe they spelled money wrong in every Bible. Uh, it's like <laughs> nobody ever said what mammon is. Uh, so anyways, but a lot of translations now, they say you cannot serve both God and money. And, and what it's getting at, this idea of money is how it's translated kind of into modern English, but it was this Aramaic word, mammon, which was also the name of a god or an idol that Syria had. And this god, mammon, this idol, mammon, was the, it was the god of wealth, of opulence, of luxury. It wasn't, you know, we translate it to money, but it's not actually just dollars. It's actually this pursuit of wealth, 
uh, of everything that you could want. I mean, you think of like DJ Khaled on a jet ski in the ocean, like with the chains flapping around. Like that's, that's mammon, I guess, is what we're doing now. So I didn't say that in first service. So if, anyways, uh, let's pray. Um, no, but there's this, this thing that Jesus is saying is that you can't do both. And ultimately what he's saying is you can't have two gods. I, as the Messiah, God, your heavenly father is calling you to live a certain way and you have to submit your life to that way. This other God is calling you to live a certain way. And if you want to follow that God, you have to submit to that way. And they're not compatible. You can't actually get both of them. You have to pick one. You cannot serve both. The story goes on. It says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about uh, your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Can any one of you, by worry, add a single hour to your life? It says, consider the birds of the air uh, and the way that your heavenly Father feeds them. There, if you were to, to pause for a moment and think about there's there's never been a bird that's been like, man, I, I hope I get enough food so I can eat tomorrow. Like they just are existing in the moment, living the way that God created them to live. Now, obviously, there's some differences between us and birds, but if I can just continue to draw the parallels, we're, we're being challenged to just live the way that God has created us to live. And we start to have these fears and worries. And, and he says, can any one of you add an hour to your life by worry? And the answer is, is no. I don't remember who said it, but I, I heard this a while ago and I've saved it since. It said, worry can't empty tomorrow of its problems, but it can empty today of its joy. It can't take tomorrow's problems and solve them. It can't do anything about tomorrow, but it can wreak havoc on today. It can wreak havoc on your relationship today, on your stress today. It can wreak havoc on your decisions today. Worry, when we let it run rampant in our lives, it does not allow us to become healthier or approach uh, tomorrow or our future in a different way. It just impacts, in a negative sense, our life today. Jesus goes on after he's talking about the birds, and he says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these if you don't know who Solomon is, King Solomon is considered to be uh, the DJ Khaled of the ancient Near East. Uh, I'll just keep going with a theme, I guess. So uh, just uh, wealthy, extravagant, more gold than anyone, more cattle, livestock. I mean, it was just like the, the picture of opulence was, was King Solomon. And Jesus is saying, even King Solomon didn't have the beauty that these flowers had. Look at how Jesus is clothing the flowers it says, if this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. There just continues to be this message that Jesus keeps saying, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and pursue wealth or luxury or, or kind of have this broken idea of, of chasing after enough or being fulfilled by stuff or a certain number in your account or whatever it might be. You cannot have both of those things. 
And nothing has changed because for thousands of years, we continue to try and pursue both. We continue to try and have both. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I, I want God to save me. Yes, I want God to heal my relationships and restore my life. And, and also, I need to make sure that I've got enough money, I've got enough finances to take care of myself and my family. And I'm not saying you should be foolish with your money. That's not what this is about. This is about where is your faith actually being put? I, I just thought of this. I, I don't know. I, I might butcher it. But I, I remember someone saying, you can tell a lot about, a peop- about people by asking, which sentence makes you more scared? The sentence, oh my God, there is no money. Or, oh my, there is no God. And I think for a lot of us, this idea that there is no money is terrifying because we want to make sure we have enough. But do you know the one thing that nobody has? Enough. Enough isn't a number. It's not a line that we're able to cross. It's not a tax bracket we're able to make it into. I've never talked to anybody that was able to achieve enough. Enough is a place that you choose to be, regardless of how much you're making or what you have or where you live or what you drive. Jesus goes on, he says, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. And when he says pagans here, he's not talking about people dancing around a fire. He's saying people that have no belief in a God chase after these things. But you have a heavenly father, is what Jesus is saying. If you believe that you have a heavenly father, if you believe that God is for you, that God is with you, that God loves you, why are you acting like the people that don't have any sort of faith? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And everybody said, amen. <laughs> Man, it is, it's so important for us to be able to parse out what Jesus is, is saying here and what he's talking about here. And, and I think that if you're anything like me, you've probably heard this before. It's Jesus's most famous sermon. You've probably heard some of these thoughts before. And even though we've heard it before, it still just, it doesn't just sink in immediately and change the way that we show up. Jesus is over and over again trying to get at the specifics of the fear, of the worry, of the control, of the mindset that there's not enough. He's trying to get at that and help us see things in a different way. Seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all of these other things, the money, the food, the clothes, the jet ski in Florida with DJ Khaled, all of these other things. I'm just kidding. That's not biblical, but... All of these things will be given to you as well. In other words, don't be devoted to money and riches. Be devoted to God. Worry about following God's way, and he will take care of the rest. There's this priority piece. C.S. Lewis talked about it. He said, uh, he said it this way. Apparently, the world is made this way. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can only get second things by putting first things first. And so many of us, I think we wrestle with this idea because it's not that being financially stable or secure is a bad thing. Money is not evil. Scripture says the love of money 
leads to evil. There's this difference. It's not that stuff is bad. It's when stuff becomes first or the pursuit or the desire of stuff becomes first. It can't work that way. You cannot get second things by putting them first. And so as we talk about the idea of this and this idea of this series of what does it mean to be blessed, it's important for us to know that living blessed means that we organize our finances around our love for God, not our fear of the future. And the future may be tomorrow. Maybe you're afraid of tomorrow. Maybe you're afraid of 50 years from now when you want to retire. Either way, we're called, we're invited, we're challenged to handle what God has entrusted us with in light of who God is, not the fears that we're able to imagine, however legitimate they may be. It's a priority piece. It makes so much, fear makes so much decisions for us. And I've never been able to convince someone to not be afraid of something just using my words. I can't convince anybody of that. I was, uh, I've got two kids, and one of them, when we say it's bedtime, he goes upstairs and just goes unconscious every night. <laughs> and then the other one loves to go up and down the stairs, and I forgot a water, and it's like, oh, I forgot to put ice in my water, and it's just like, there's just the creativity of reasons. And some of them are the traditional ones, like I have to go to the bathroom or whatever it is. There was a time where he came down, it's a fairly common one, but it was like 10 trips down the stairs later, and he said, I'm scared. And I was very frustrated, and I had already used up all of my patience and energy that night, and I said, well, don't be. <laughs> Which makes sense to me, because he has no reason to be scared. There is nothing under his bed. There's nothing in his closet. We are here. He has enough food. There's water and ice and all the things that he needs. Like, there's no reason for him to be scared, but I can't just convince him of that. And I know that, and it wasn't my greatest moment, and I'm not recommending that as a parenting technique, but the conversation begins to shift when you sit down and you have a conversation, and you say, well, buddy, what is it that you're scared of? And he says what he's scared of, and then I get to articulate. It's like, yeah, but, you know, you've, you've always been safe. You, you were scared the other night, too, and remember how you were able to go to sleep and nothing happened, or, you know, I'm, I'm addressing and I'm, I'm pointing back to this, the, the truth and the reality of his lived experience to help him understand that he doesn't need to be scared anymore. A similar thing happened uh, this last week. Um, we went to Disneyland, which we do. We have Disney passes, and it used to be something that we loved doing as a family, and now it's just something that Ez and I just drag our kids to, which is, I guess, the epitome of being spoiled. Um, but uh, we went, and they had never been on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, or whatever that ride is called. And it's kind of roller coaster-ish, but it's not super intense. And uh, they were both a little bit nervous about it. They'd, they'd not been on it. And, and uh, it was, again, that same type of situation of like, oh, I'm scared. Like, I don't know if it's too fast. Does it go upside down? Does it this? Does it that? And all I could really do for the 45 minutes that we waited in line was say, hey, like, I'm not going to trick you into doing something that's terrifying. Like, it's not terrifying. I'm not going to trick you into doing something that's going to hurt you. And I could kind of point back to other rides. It's, well, it's kind of like this one. Remember when that was scary and then you went on it and you realized it was actually fun? And so I'm having this whole conversation for 45 minutes and then we finally get on the line and, or on the ride and they have obviously an incredible time and we get off and like, can we do it again? It's like, no. 
I'm not, I'm not waiting in that line again. But it was just like this immediate like thrill and excitement of realizing how beautiful it was. But they didn't just trust my words of saying like, oh, you're going to love it. I had to literally connect the dots of what's happened in the past and say, hey, it's kind of like this. Or remember when you were nervous about this ride and now you love that ride. I'm reminding them of something they've already experienced in a way of helping them overcome the fear that they're facing in this moment. And Jesus is doing the same exact thing when he's preaching this sermon. And we don't always get it because we are in a different time in a different context. And it's important for me to say, when you read the Bible, there's things in there that are encouraging, there's things that are challenging, there's things that are confusing, there's things we don't understand. Like, all of that is true. And it is so layered. And so you can continue to learn more and more, even just out of the same verse or a couple of verses. The scripture tells us that it's alive, living, sharper than a two-edged sword, that somehow God uses the scripture to continue to teach us things. And, and so when we read this Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is saying, it's, man, that's incredible. But when we recognize that 2,000 years ago when he was teaching this to Jewish people who were listening, he's speaking this sermon and he's saying things that they hear and it's like warning lights are going off in their head. I don't know if warning light's the right term, but these, these lights are flashing like, wait a second, this sounds familiar. Wait a second, what's he doing here? And I want to point this out because it's so crucial of what Jesus is actually doing here. When he says, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? When he's saying those things, lights are going off, sirens are going off. They're like, wait, that sounds familiar. That sounds familiar. And it should sound familiar because they had been uh, being told these stories since they were kids, the greatest stories of their ancestors and their heroes. The Israelites, who God freed from slavery, and they leave Egypt, hundreds of thousands of them, they go into the wilderness free, and it took about a couple days for them to be very hungry. And they were angry and upset. And they said ridiculous things like, oh, I wish we were still slaves. At least there we had free food. Like, really? Free food? You were slaves. They start complaining and they're frustrated. And, and Moses is frustrated with them and he speaks with God. And ultimately, and I'm giving the very short version, but they are hungry and they're worried about it. And God provides them food called manna. It is this bread type of substance that gives them all of the nutrients that they actually need. And they were worried about what they were going to eat. And obviously, wildernesses tend to be deserts, and deserts tend to be hot, and they got thirsty, and there wasn't water for them, and they started worrying about what they were going to drink, and complaining, and, and arguing, and, and God tells Moses to go and, and speak to this rock, and, and Moses hits this boulder with his staff, and, and water starts pouring out of this boulder, and all of a sudden, now they have something to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, or what you're going to drink, and then he says, or what we shall wear. And I know you may be sitting here being like, okay, Chris, God didn't provide clothes for them. There was no target in the wilderness. <laughs> but as I was getting ready for today, I was reading and kind of going through this sermon. I was like, man, this is interesting. I wonder what it actually does say about this idea of, of their clothes. Because God provided them food when they didn't have any. God provided them drinks when they didn't have any. And would you believe it that in Deuteronomy 25, God says, for the 40 years 
that you walked in the wilderness, your sandals and your clothes never wore out once. And whether you believe it or not, Jesus is helping them understand worrying is not going to get you where you want to go. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember when you were hungry, he fed you. When you were thirsty, you had drink. You had clothes. You had sandals. God has been providing and delivering you for hundreds and hundreds of years. And why do you think that now you need to start worrying? Remember who God is. Remember God's faithfulness. Jesus is essentially saying the the best way to combat fear and keep it from making decisions for us is by being grateful for our past, seeing our past, recognizing our past. The most repeated command in the scripture is do not be afraid or fear not. But the most repeated phrase in scripture is give thanks to the Lord. And I just, I think it's interesting I don't know if it's any more than that, but I think it's interesting that the most repeated command is don't be afraid, and the most repeated phrase is give thanks to the Lord. I think it's interesting that those things rise to the top, and I wonder if there's like a connection there that we should be aware of, of recognizing God's goodness and generosity and faithfulness in our lives somehow allows us to not be afraid, somehow allows us to not live in fear. On Friday... Um, the, the miracle of our kids being up early and ready for school early happened. And um, it was up there with God not letting sandals wear out for 40 years of walking through a desert. So uh, we went to Sidecar Donuts, and it was delicious, and it was chilly. We were sitting outside, and, um, and uh, my kids are eating donuts, and I'm just drinking coffee trying to wake up and keep up with their energy. And and it reminded me, because it was chilly, and they were complaining about how cold they were. And I was like, well, I'm not cold. And my uh, old pastor mentor used to say this. He's like, do you know who the most grateful people in the world are? Coffee drinkers. Because <laughs> you wake up in the morning, and <sighs> he's like, and that's what thankful people do. They look at their life, and they just go, ah. Like in coffee drinkers, they've got their own, they got their own personal little fireplace that they get to just kind of hover over and don't have to worry about their kids burning themselves. And it's like grateful people, they look at their life and, and they look at it with gratitude. They look at their house or their apartment or whatever it is. It's not exactly the way that you might choose it to be. And they look at it and they say, ah, and they look at a sunset and, and they look at it with wonder and they say, Ah, and then they go out to their car that's maybe not the nicest car in the world, but it works, and they look at it and they say, ah, this is what thankful people do. And he says, you, you go out to your, you know, you wake up in the morning, you go to the bathroom, and you look in the mirror, and you, and you think, huh? Uh, <laughs> but there is this like thankfulness piece that is so crucial for us to understand, this, this gratitude piece. And I want to just spend the last three minutes that we have going through this because what Jesus is saying is remember how good and faithful God has been to you. And when you hold on to that, when you stand in that place and when you're able to acknowledge it and be grateful, then you can look at how you want to make your choices and live your life today, whether it needs to be worried about or not. 
the, the password into God's presence, Psalm 100 in the message translation, it says, enter with the password, thank you. Make yourselves at home, talking praise, thank him, worship him, for God is sheer beauty, all generous in love. And let's read this last phrase together. Loyal always and ever. Always and ever. There is this ability that we have, and, and it's very simple, but it simply says you can enter into God's presence by saying thank you. Because every single thing that you have in your life that is beautiful and worthy of praise and worthy of acknowledging or taking notice of is a gift from God. He is there giving us the breath that we have. And when we say thank you, we're just immediately acknowledging, God, I recognize who you are and, and thank you. Thank you for the sunset. Thank you for this house or this apartment or this version of me in the mirror. Thank you. In Romans chapter one, Paul's writing and he says, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. Can you imagine if you were to come up with a list of what made people broken or problematic or evil? evil <laughs> what would make that list? You could probably come up with a lot of great things. And Paul's articulating, he says, they, they knew who God was, but they wouldn't worship him or even give him thanks. That's how ridiculous it is. They wouldn't even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. Because if it wasn't from God, then who, who must it be from? Themselves. And all of a sudden, we have a twisted idea of who God is. And he says, as a result, their minds became dark and confused. The way you're seeing life, the way you're making decisions, the things that you're worrying about, the things that you're putting stock in or faith in or your hope in, it's all twisted and dark and confused. So much of it goes back to the basic reality of giving God thanks. Thankfulness says, I want what I have. And contentment says, I don't need any more. Give thanks through all circumstances. Recognizing what you have is a gift, and I'm grateful for it. Over the last four or five years, every time I've talked about this message on this weekend and talked about this idea of thankfulness and, and what does it mean to want what you have, I've talked about my 2004 Scion XB. Looks like a tissue box covered in rust, and when you drive it on the freeway, it sounds like the wheels are going to just like pop off and fly off the side of the freeway. Uh, the thing was unbelievably junky. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Not the appropriate time to say amen, okay? Just kidding. Um, but a few months ago, I got into a car accident, and my insurance very quickly said, oh yeah, that's totaled. Uh, <laughs> you're not getting that car back. We're not fixing that. But the reality was that this car was, you know, so much of not what I wanted, but I chose to be thankful for it, maybe not as much as I should have, and it did so much for me. A, it was free. Somebody gave it to me, and then it never had any issues. It was a gift, and there was this journey for me of recognizing, man, I, I'm, I'm thankful for this, this thing that I have, and sure, it would be great to have something nicer, but this is, this is incredible, and this is... I am thankful for this. I want what I have. And now it's gone, which is tragic, except to my child. Mason lovingly referred to it as a hunk of junk. Uh, there, was, there was one time we were leaving in the morning, and um, I said, hey, are we going to take mom's car, or are we going to take this hunk of junk? <laughs> I think he called it a rust bucket a couple. I mean, it's just like, bro, take it easy on my car, OK? 
Thankfulness says, I want what I have, and contentment says, I don't need any more. Paul wrote, I've learned to be content with whatever I have. It's important to recognize that he learned to be content with whatever he had. Whether it was a lot or a little, he goes on and says, and he's figured out how to be content with whatever he has because of who Jesus is in his life. It doesn't mean that Jesus gave him every single thing that he wanted. It was this reliance that God has been faithful and I can be content because I know that God will continue to be faithful, loyal forever and ever, as it said in Psalm 103. Who's more content, the guy with $10 million or the guy with 10 kids? The guy with 10 kids, because he doesn't want any more. <laughs> That's it. There's this contentment piece that is so crucial for us. Thankfulness says, I want what I have, and contentment says, I don't need anymore. The best way to fight fear is not through refusing to acknowledge it, but by embracing gratitude. The best way to fight fear is not by pretending like it doesn't exist or there's not bad things in the world or even that you're not facing massive obstacles. You may be facing one of the hardest times of your life, health or relational challenges or financial issues or I don't know. I mean, I get it. There are difficult things that are happening all around us and none of us are immune from that. I'm not pretending like that doesn't exist, but the best way to face fear is not through refusing to acknowledge it, but by tracing God's goodness and faithfulness and the way that he has continued to provide over and over again in your life by remembering that he has been generously loyal. Psalm 103 says, let all that I am praise the Lord with my whole heart. I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. And let's read this together also. It's not on the screen, so you can't. (laughs) May I never forget the good things he does for me. May I never forget the good things that he does for me. And as we hold on to these good things, as we recognize and remember the faithfulness and, and the little things and the big things and, and, and the fact that we have breath, that we're able to be here today to the relationships and the family, I think about the challenges that we've had even in our own lives and the health scares and the issues. And it's so important for me to continue to remember how good God has been. Even my kids, I mean, everybody likes to imagine that their kids are a gift. And there's days when it doesn't necessarily feel like that, I'll I'll be honest. But our kids, my kids are a gift. They are literal, actual miracles, both of them. And when I keep that truth in my mind, nothing else matters. Never forget the good things God has done for you because when you hold on to and keep those front and center and give God thanks and acknowledge his goodness and his faithfulness and all these things, it allows you to face the future, the unknown, the options, the choices, and you don't have to worry because you recognize, man, God has been so faithful. It's not that there's not scary things out there. It's that God has a track record and we can pay attention to that and the way to build that confidence is by being intentional about remembering what we are grateful for. There's all kinds of studies that have been done, and I won't go into all the details, but they talk about how much healthier 
and happier people are when they write down specifically what they are grateful for. They say five things in the morning, five things at night. You can just do 10 a day. But people that have this habit of writing down what they are thankful for, they are physically healthier, they are emotionally healthier, they are more attractive, I like to think. Uh, and so I want to just end today by doing what this verse says. May I never forget the good things God does for me. And, and it's easy to say like, yeah, God is so good. But take a second and write down specifically what are the good things in your life? What are 10 things? And, and so you guys... You have pens and papers or phones. Everybody in here has something that they can write down. And um, we're going to take a minute and play some music. And I just literally, I want you to take the next 30 to 45 seconds and write down 10 things. And you don't have to share them. You don't have to show other people what they are. They can be things that you think might sound silly. They can be things that are incredibly meaningful to you. But I want you to take a second and write down what are 10 things that you are grateful for? What are 10 things good things that God has done for you or trusted you with. May we never forget. To not forget means that we have to be intentional. We have to remember. We have to track. If you're anything like me, it feels like, oh, 10 things is super easy. And then you start like, okay, does this seem shallow? Is this really something I should put on the list? There is nothing too small. There's nothing too big to acknowledge what God has done for you and in you and through you, the way he has shown up in your life. Regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, information about getting baptized or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa and then scroll down to the next steps section. If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving. Thanks again for listening today, and I hope that I get to see you soon.